0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode.
1: The founding tenet of postmodern philosophy um, is that there are no absolutes, right? So there's, there's no right and there's no wrong there's nothing that's absolutely true. Um, everything is relative. Um, that's the, the basic premise of postmodernism, isn't it? Uh, and that means that you can do more or less whatever you like. Uh, and, and that's generally the way that people in the world think, isn't it? If you ask the man on the street, as long as you're not upsetting the man next to you, well, you can, you can do more or less what you want. Um, and that kind of philosophical thinking trickles down into um, organized religion, and we see a push in, in the churches around us towards ecumenic, ecumenicism, towards the idea that, well, you know, anybody can come in and, and can join in, and, and it doesn't really matter fundamentally what, what you think as long as you're doing your best. Um, and so what we want to do this evening is, is take a step aside from that kind of philosophical thinking and say, okay, what does the Bible have to say about this, this subject? Um, And what we're going to do initially is take a few passages to establish um, a general principle um, about the way that God works with with men and women. Um, And perhaps you won't be surprised, I'll spoil the ending for you, I'm going to suggest that yes, it does matter um, from those passages. Um, But what we want to do then is spend a good chunk of time actually thinking beyond that and asking the question which isn't really in our title, which is "Well, why, why does it matter? Um, And hopefully we'll find something helpful in that. So as I said, let's take um, a few passages just to to establish some principles. So first of all, um, can we go into the Old Testament, please, to the book of Leviticus? Um, And we want to go and look at Leviticus and chapter 10. In this passage, we're with the children of Israel um, in the wilderness. They have uh, been enslaved in Egypt, and God, through Moses, has delivered them from their, their slavery and has brought them out of Egypt. And he's taking them to the promised land, the land of of Canaan which is going to become the land of Israel um, and we're with them here on that journey they journey through the wilderness for 40 years uh, and Leviticus chapter 10 records for us something that happens while they're journeying. Um, so we'll go in uh, Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1 please where we read that Nadab and Abihu the sons of Aaron took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord which he commanded them not. And we'll just stop there, don't read verse two a second. So we've got here Aaron who is the high priest and he's got two sons uh, called Nadab and Abihu uh, and they're priests as well. And they're going to go into the tabernacle of God and they're going to, to offer incense. They're going to participate in the worship of the nation. Um, and you know, they, they haven't got the special incense that God said should be burnt in the tabernacles to hand. So they grab whatever incense they've got and they, they go in and no big deal, right? Well, verse two. There went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord." Maybe that makes us pause a moment and just think, wow, that seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? let's just park that example. Let's go forward, please. Come to the next book of the Bible, the book of Numbers. And let's look at Numbers chapter 16. And here we're still um, in the wilderness. We're still with the children of Israel while they're wandering. Um, and we're going to read another uh, incident that occurs while they're wandering, which in some ways is very similar to uh, what we read in Leviticus. Um, Numbers chapter 16. Again, we'll go in at verse 1. Um, Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord." And so what's happening here? Well, we have these men, Korah and Dathan and Abiram and and on, who um, are there in the nation of Israel and they, they're looking at the worship of the nation and they see Moses and Aaron and they see this special position that Moses and Aaron have at the center of the worship of God um, and they say well, you know we'd like to be involved in that we want to get more involved in the worship of God we want to be there at the center um, uh, and they've been reading their Bibles it's not immediately obvious in in the version that I'm reading but in verse three there um, in the middle of the verse they say uh, that you take too much upon you seeing all the congregation are holy right Uh, And if you've got a margin, that will actually tell you that where they say all the congregation are holy, they're quoting from the book of Exodus. So they're quoting from what God has already given to them in the Bible. Uh, And that's how they understand that passage, that it means that they should be able to get involved, right? So, well, that's what they think. That's what their interpretation of that passage is. So we have to respect that, right? Well, what happens? Moses proposes a test to see whether uh, Korah and Dathan and Abiram and the men that are with them are right. Uh, and this is the test. We're going to skip over There's a lot of detail in the chapter. We're going to skip over it for time. So come down um, to verse 28. This is the test that Moses proposes. Um, Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind, If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And and what happens? Verse 31, It came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, the ground clave asunder that was under them and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods, they and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. And Again, you look at it and you go, wow, isn't that, isn't that harsh? Um, let's just park that example and let's take one more just in this vein, let's go to, a little bit further on please to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter six. And here now we've moved on in time. And the nation of Israel have entered the land of uh, of Israel, and um, they've been established there. um, And they've had a period where they were ruled over by judges. And then we've had the first king, who was called Saul. And now we're in the reign of of the next king, who's a man called David, uh, a very famous king. And um, David has done some wonderful work uh, on behalf of the Lord God. And he's conquered the city of Jerusalem which is the place where God has said, you know, I'm going to set my name. That's where I'm going to dwell on the earth. Um, And uh, David has chosen to make Jerusalem his capital. Um, And because it's his capital city, he's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem to live there. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is the most sacred item that the children of Israel have um, in all of their worship. It it sits at the very center of the camp um, and above the Ark of the Covenant is the place where God's glory dwells on earth so it 's this incredibly special piece of furniture, um, uh, and David is bringing it to the city of God. So this is you know, one of the most momentous occasions in the entire religious history of the nation to date, uh, and this was a day of great rejoicing, and you can get a flavor of that from the text. So Second um, Samuel chapter six and verse one, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, thirty thousand he 's got thirty thousand men who've come from from way up north and way down south, they've all come um, to witness this great day. Um, And David, verse two, arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God. Um, uh, And what happens, verse three, they set the ark of God upon a new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And we read that these two men, and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, they drive this cart um, uh, and off they go. Uh, and we get a flavor of just how exciting it was. Look at verse 5. Uh, David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of firwood, on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. They've got this great orchestra playing, uh, and the people are rejoicing, and it's a great day. And then what happens? Well, verse 6. They came to Nacon's threshing floor. As I put forth his hand to the ark of God, and took hold of it for the oxen shook it. You know, the road is a bit bumpy. Uh, and the cows who are pulling this, this cart, they start to stumble and the, the cart wobbles. And it looks like the Ark of God is going to fall off the cart and land unceremoniously on the dust and maybe suffer damage. You know, how awfully would that have marred the proceedings? What a terrible event would that have been to happen? And so this man, Uzza, who's driving the cart, puts out his hand and just steadies the Ark to make sure it doesn't fall off right, with the best of intentions. And what happens? Verse 7. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God smote him there for his error and there he died by the Ark of God. Again, you just think, wow, doesn't that seem a bit harsh? All of these examples are examples where men pay the consequences for ignoring what God has told them previously right um so in Leviticus chapter 10 god had told them exactly what incense they were to burn and he said you're going to use that one and you're not going to use any other um, in numbers chapter 16 they'd been given everybody in the in the whole nation had been given a role and been told exactly what their place was in the worship of god and, and here in second samuel chapter 6 they'd been told how they were to to carry the ark they were to put poles through little rings on the sides of it, and they were to carry it on the shoulders of the priests, presumably, to to prevent exactly this sort of thing from happening. Um, These are three examples uh, of men saying, we know that God's told us that we have to do it this way, but actually, we know better. We're going to do it our way. Um, But what these three examples tell us is that you cannot say, uh, you absolutely cannot say, that God is not interested in uh, what men and women believe uh, and the way that they worship him. uh, that categorically you cannot say, well, maybe God did create the world at the beginning, but he's just left it running and, and you know, he's not interested in, in what we do anymore. Why would the almighty creator have any interest in the minutiae of my life? Well, what those three passages that we've just looked at have told us is that that's absolutely not the case. God is interested um, in men and women and in having a relationship with men and women. Let's take a, a final, a more positive example. Let's go to the New Testament, please. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. Um, and we'll just draw a slightly different point from this one. Now, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, we're introduced to this man called Cornelius. Um, and Cornelius verse 1. Uh, of Acts chapter 10, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. So this man um, is uh, uh, an Italian, uh, a Roman, he's a, a Roman centurion. And then we get a very different description in verse 2. Um, he is a devout man, one that feared God with all his house, which gave much arms to the people and prayed to God always. And I just want you to pause a minute and just think about who is speaking in verse 2 here. Um, because verse 2 is not the opinion of, of any character in the record, is it? Verse 2 is narrative comment. Right? And that means that it is the opinion of the inspired writer. And therefore, it is what God himself has given the writer to say about Cornelius. Now, if an inspired writer was to write, you know, that Andrew Jenkins, he's a devout man, one that fears God. Uh, with all his house, he gives much arms, he prays always. I would be very happy with that. Thank you very much. Um, but what we find as we go through Acts chapter 10 is that that's not enough. Cornelius is a great guy, but it doesn't matter. He's lacking something fundamental. And, and what happens in the story of Acts chapter 10, again, it's a long chapter with a lot of detail, but he, uh, Peter, uh, the apostle, is sent to him to, to make up that which he is lacking. Um, and uh, Peter has this, there's this story about how Peter gets to him, um, but, but Peter comes and Peter um, speaks to Cornelius and then we find the real reason that Peter is uh, is sent to him. Come down right to the end of the chapter. Um, Verse 44, Peter is delivering an address and speaking to Cornelius and those who were were of his household. Verse 44, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all them which heard the word. Now, that's important. And the reason for that is that this is a a watershed moment in the history of the first century church, Um, because Up to this point, God's dealings have been primarily with the nation of Israel. Uh, And Cornelius, as we said, is an Italian, a Roman, so he's a Gentile, he's not from the Jewish nation. Um, And in order to to mark that, yes, the Gospel is for Gentiles as well as Jews, um, they're given the Holy Spirit, um, so that nobody can argue that, yes, Cornelius has also been called. But that's not the reason that Peter's been sent, because even after Cornelius has received the Holy Spirit, uh, we, we have this, verse, uh, reading on just so that it makes sense, verse 45, they of the circumcision which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, and then we find why Peter was sent. Halfway through verse, verse 46, then answered Peter, can any man forbid water, that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Spirit as well as we, and he commanded them to be baptized. In the name of the Lord, it's a command uh, that Peter gives. Um, and Peter, having uh, made sure that they they understand and that they believe aright, ha- having talked to them, um, God then demonstrates that they've been chosen, and Peter commands them to be baptized. But that is necessary. It is necessary that, that Cornelius accepts baptism and then changes his life as a result of that. And and uh, and believes the things that Peter has been sent to speak to him about. It's necessary, even though he's a really good person. And so again, we cannot say um, that so long as you're a good person and you're trying your best, it doesn't matter what you believe. It wasn't enough for Cornelius. Um, It's not enough for you and me either. So let's change gears a little bit now then. And let's think about, well, well, why? Why does it matter? And we have to understand something about the God of the Bible. So come back into the Old Testament for me, please. Um, We're going to go all the way back to Exodus and Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus chapter 34, we have a really key Bible passage where God tells us something about himself. Um, We're way back with the children of Israel uh, on their wilderness wanderings again, in their, their 40 years in the wilderness, and we're with Moses. And Moses has asked God, Um, to show him his glory in the previous chapter. Uh, And God says, well, if you want to see my glory, you have to understand my character. You have to understand um, who I am. Uh, And so if we go into Exodus chapter 34 uh, and verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin that will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children upon the children's children to the third and the fourth generation and all of the attributes that we read about there in those verses are, are worthy of study this is a really key bible passage but we just want to hone in on on one of the words that we found there in verse six at the end of verse six God told us that one of the characteristics that is fundamental to his being is truth, that the the God of the Bible, the God that that we worship, um, is unchanging, that his way is right, his way is true. Uh, And by definition, anything that is not in accordance with his will uh, is false and is error, Um, that God is true. And that's how we can have, you know, hope in his promises, in the things that he's given to us, the things that he's told us in his word. We know that God does not change. Um, We're told elsewhere that with with him is no shadow of turning. Um, Truth is essential to his being. Um, And it ought not to surprise us then that the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to show us uh, about God, to show us uh, his Father, uh, well, truth is also very important to him. Come now to the New Testament, to John's Gospel, please. In John's Gospel record in particular, um, there's a significant portion of, uh, of the record, five chapters in John's Gospel, which is devoted to the teaching that Jesus gives um, in what we call the upper room, so the last meal that he has with his disciples before he's taken away from them um, and put to death by the Roman authorities. Um, and so in these five chapters we have in detail the very you know the last moments that Jesus is able to spend uh, before he's taken from them, giving detailed teaching to his disciples. Um, And we just want to look at what he emphasizes to them uh, in this passage. Come to John chapter 14. One of the things that Jesus talks to them about is the fact um, that they're going to receive, when when he's taken from them, they are going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, And he refers to it in very particular terms. First of all, Um, In John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus says unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the truth is fundamental to what Jesus is doing with his disciples. And then he he talks to them about them being given the Holy Spirit. So he says in verse 16, I will pray the Father, he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And we have this again, if you turn over to chapter 15. um, Just look at the end of chapter 15, verse 26, talking about the same thing. When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Um, And it's using personification um, here. But again, he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. And once more, um, in chapter 16, and verse 13 Howbeit, when he the Spirit of truth is come he will guide you into all truth he shall not speak of himself but whatsoever he shall hear that shall he speak he will show you things to come um, uh, and so it's not our subject now we don't want to get into kind of the personification of the spirit here but but Jesus is saying that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit in order that they will know what's true right? and he thinks it's really really important that when he's gone The disciples know what's true Um, uh, and he says particularly that we read in verse in chapter 15 that he was going to testify of me so it's important that they understand what's true about Jesus and then in in verse 13 of chapter 16 where we read he will guide you into all truth uh, that they will know what is true and what is false And, and that's really important to Jesus that they know that and we find the same thing after He's been taken from them and crucified and raised from the dead. We find him giving exactly the same message to them when he appears to them again after his resurrection. Come um, to Mark's gospel, please, to Mark chapter 16. So These are the very last things now. Now, he's, he's been taken. He's been crucified. He's been raised from the dead. he's spent some time with them. And now he's about to ascend to the Father. So these are the very last moments um, which he's going to have with his disciples. Um, uh, and look at the commission that he gives them. Um, In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15 he said unto them go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved but he that believeth not shall be condemned he says now I've told you and now you have uh, the truth you need to go and to share that with the world and it's important that you do because it's only by belief and baptism into into the things that you're talking about, um, that men and women will be saved. Now again, um, the postmodern person might look at that and say, well, okay, verse 16 says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but it doesn't qualify it, right? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Well, he that believeth what? Well, if we read through verse 15 to 16, preach the gospel to every creature, he that believeth and is baptized. So you have to believe the gospel. And so again, the postmodern might say, okay, well, what's the gospel, right? Is it what I think is the gospel might be different to what you think it is. And there are plenty of people who will say, well, well, my understanding is different to yours. And as long as our understandings don't upset one another, then that's fine, right? You can believe what you want. The gospel is something, you know, airy-fairy, something esoteric. Is that the case? We can demonstrate that that absolutely is not the case. In fact, you know, we can demonstrate from the text here in Mark 16 that, that it means something concrete, and then we'll go through and we'll see uh, just how much the case that is. But um, here's just one suggestion for you about something that's being referred to here, right? Um, immediately prior to this, in Mark chapter 16, um, it's been talking to us about people that, that Jesus met after he was raised from the dead, witnesses to his resurrection. So um, So we have Uh, In Mark chapter 16 and verse 9, Jesus was risen early the first day of the week. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. She went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. Okay, verse 12 after that he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country they went and told it unto the residue neither believed they them afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen all these people who believed not and he said unto them verse 15 go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved and so straight off the bat, what you have to believe, at the very least, includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the corollary of that, the resurrection of the faithful. It's not you know, something that you can take or leave. Right? That's fundamental to the gospel that is being talked about in verse 15 is the idea of the resurrection from the dead. And Mark is really helpful because Mark defines his gospel. Come back to the first chapter of Mark the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The fundamental, again, non-negotiable, is the idea that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The gospel is something that is definable, that is concrete. Um, Verse 2, as it is written in the prophets, and he quotes uh, from from the prophet Malachi and from the prophet Isaiah, uh, and what he's saying is um, the gospel is consistent. You can find the very same gospel that I'm talking about in the Old Testament, in the prophets. We find it a little bit further on in the same chapter, verse 14. After that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God, uh, sorry, the gospel is about the kingdom of God being established on the earth and the need to repent and to be baptized, to have a place in it. It's about Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. The gospel is not airy-fairy. The gospel is something concrete, something definable, um, something that you can find out by reading the scriptures. And it's consistent. So let's go now to the passage that we took to introduce our remarks, Romans chapter 1. And here we find um, the Spirit through Paul talks about exactly the same thing. Romans chapter 1. And let's go in again at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, notice which he had promised before by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, so Paul says just as Mark does, you can find the gospel in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, in Malachi, in the prophets. And the gospel is, verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Uh, And Paul, through the spirit, is ticking exactly the same boxes as Mark did, isn't he? The gospel is is something tangible, it's something definable, it's not something that you can pick and choose and decide, you know, this is my gospel and yours can be different. The gospel is consistent, the gospel is concrete. Uh, And let's see what he goes on to say. Verse. 15 now as much as in me is Paul says I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ it is the power of God unto salvation what did Mark say Mark said everyone that believes the gospel is baptized shall be saved here Paul saying that that the gospel has the power to save verse 17 for therein is the righteousness of God revealed it tells us about God, about his character, about what he says is right. It's exactly the same as, as Exodus was talking about. But if there is a gospel which is true, if there are things which are true, by definition, there must be things which are false. There must also be error. And that's what Romans goes on to talk about. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And he's going to go on to talk about people who are willfully ignorant of the truth that God has set before them. Ian read so nicely for us, if we come down to verse 22, that these people professing themselves to be wise, remember the postmodern philosophers that we were talking about at the beginning, those philosophers who think they're so wise, they become fools because they've changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. And verse 25, they changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, the creature or the created thing. This is about men and women serving themselves, choosing to worship themselves, placing themselves at the centre of their thought and excluding God, saying, you know, Let's put aside what God has said for a minute. Let's think about what we want the gospel to be. Let's think about what we want the truth to be. Postmodernism. And God says that what they've done, verse 25, is they've taken the truth that God has laid before them and they've turned it into a lie. And that is strong language, but that is by definition. If something is not true, then it is a lie. And this starts to accelerate then um, and it becomes clearer and clearer why this is so important. Come on to Romans chapter 2 now. Verse 3. Thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. This is why it matters. Because we said that the gospel has the power to save. Um, And Romans chapter two and verse three says that there is a judgment coming. That God, verse six, will render to every man, according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious, and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, they will receive indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. And the point upon which we are to be judged was there in verse eight, wasn't it? It's those who do not obey the truth. It is our response to the truth which determines the outcome at the judgment day. And Paul is so so sure, and it's so beautiful, Paul is so sure that, that what he has is truth, that he's able to say in verse 16, uh, he's able to talk about the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And he's, he's not being big headed. He's not saying it's his gospel to the exclusion of everybody else's. But so sure is he that the things he's had revealed to him um, are true, that he talks about God judging people according to his gospel. Um, uh, and there is the simplicity of it, that the gospel that Paul was teaching is true. And it behoves us um, to uh, to drill down into what God has has caused to be set down for us, um, to make sure that, that what we understand is the same as what Paul understood, that we believe to be true is the same as what Paul believed to be true. So let's come full circle. Does, does it matter? what we believe. Well, what we've demonstrated um, is that it matters to God Uh, and the question then is, is, well then, does that matter to us? Because he he tells us that he's given us everything that we need um, to please him and to receive a place in his kingdom um, when he sends his son to judge the world. And the question we have to ask ourselves then is, well, do we want a place in that kingdom? And if we do, Well, then we have to seek truth, because it is our response to the truth revealed in the Bible that will determine um, how we are judged. I'll leave you with a final thought. Um, We talked a few times about postmodernism. The nation of Israel had its own postmodern period. Um, During the period of the judges, um, there was no kind of central authority. There was no king who made the rules for the entire nation. Um, uh, And we read about, in the book of Judges, the the time when the judges ruled. Um, And right at the end of the book of Judges, there's this uh, collection of material. There's, I don't know, seven chapters or so, um, which we call the appendices to the book, which which don't deal with a particular judge as the rest of the book does. um, But they just deal with uh, how things were at the time of the Judges. And they give us a flavor for how life was at that time in Israel. And there is a, a phrase which recurs over and over again through that portion um, of the book of Judges. And I'll I'll just read it to you. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And is that not postmodernism? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And the problem was that there was no king. The gospel that the Bible presents for us, the hope that the Bible holds out to us, is for a time when there will be a king who rules over a kingdom um, where there is righteousness, where there is peace, where there is safety and security, where there is no more corruption, um, where there is no more of man's inhumanity to man, um, but all is in accordance with God's will. That is the wonderful hope that the Bible holds out to us. Um, That is the hope that we invite you to explore uh, with us.